1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're coming to the latter section in chapter 4 and the first section in chapter 5. As you're turning there, most of you are aware that the Apostle Paul visited the Greek city of Thessalonica in the year 49 to 50 AD. He spent several months there, and as he shared his faith and began to preach the gospel, it impacted not only individual lives, but families and the community itself. And so now he's writing to encourage this young church in the thriving, bustling city of Thessalonica. And his good friend and colleague, Timothy, has just returned from a visit to that city. And he's given Paul a little update on how the folks are doing and as they're growing in their faith and the questions they have. And so Paul writes this epistle that we know as First Thessalonians. And so at chapter 4, verse 13, the apostle writes these words. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith, and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And this morning, as we come to this penultimate study in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we are coming to a passage of Scripture that folks have interpreted differently down through the centuries. And this morning, hopefully, it will be 
fairly clear as we look at all that Paul was writing to this young church in Thessalonica. Now, for most of us, there is a temptation to believe that the second coming as a doctrine, it's called eschatology, it's a subsection of systematic theology. The temptation, in fact, is to believe that it is filled with bewildering, incomprehensible language. It's packed with complex imagery, apocalyptic symbolism, and quite honestly, it's better left alone. But if we are Christians seeking to grow in our faith, whenever it comes up in a passage of Scripture, we need to at least touch on it and say, why was Paul writing back then? Why was it important back then? And to some extent, more importantly, why is it pertinent and important to us in a 21st century setting? And so that's why we're looking at it this morning. And the Apostle Paul, knowing a little about the church there, has heard from Timothy, and the church in Thessalonica are probably asking, what happens to someone after they die? What, where does that person go? What will life for them be like? And what happens when Christ returns? And the second coming is taught throughout scriptures from the Gospels all the way through to Revelation. Here is the Apostle Paul seeking to answer some of the questions uppermost in the minds of this young church who are growing in this thriving, bustling city of Thessalonica. And so, chapter 4, verse 13, he writes, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now that phrase, those who have fallen asleep, is a fairly gentle way to talk about death. And we'll pick it up and come back to it in a moment or two. But where I wanted to focus initially was on the end of that verse when he says, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. I remember as a fairly young minister, I was probably 34, 35 years old, and I received a phone call to tell me that a lady, a grandmother in fact, had passed away the day before, and could I help with the funeral? And of course, I was glad to do so. So when I visited the family home, I met with granddad, who obviously was upset at the passing of his wife. I met with her adult children. We put together an order of service. We arranged a time and a place, and everything was in position, ready to go. And about 15 minutes before the service, I arrived at the church. I went into a small hall where the family had gathered. And of course, not only was it just granddad and the adult children this time, it was nieces and nephews, uh, cousins, aunts, uncles. The whole family was there. There was around 25 or 30 of them. And I was dressed pretty similarly to I am now. I stepped into the room, I saw granddad over to my right and the adult children close by and I smiled and nodded to them and was busy taking in the room when over on this corner two teenage girls just exploded in tears. Just exploded. And I wasn't expecting that. I thought, goodness me, what's happened? 
And what I went on to discover and have subsequently discovered and still have a similar experience at times is this, that these two teenage girls who loved their grandmother and loved her deeply had, of course, been grieving since grandma's passing. But they were able, because aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and everyone else was around them, they had been able to control their emotions. But when the minister arrived to conduct the service, the finality of Granny's passing broke into their lives. And they were overcome with sadness and couldn't hold back the tears. Now, now that I've been in pastoral ministry the best part of 25 years or so, I've come to expect that at a funeral service. And if you're here this morning and have lost someone in your family whom you love dearly, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandparent, and you're experiencing the grief process and the overwhelming sadness that often accompanies that, This epistle is for you this morning. And that's why Paul was writing to the folks at Thessalonica to say to them, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of the heart and the pain and the sadness, please understand, as Christians, we don't grieve like the rest of humanity. Because in the midst of our sadness and grief, we have hope not just in the short term, but for eternity as well. And that's why Paul writes here, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Is grieving the natural process of loving someone who dies? Absolutely. And you should never, ever give yourself a hard time because the tears come at unexpected moments. You shouldn't beat yourself up over being sad. But in fact, you should do the opposite. You should allow grief to take its natural course. I remember again as a young pastor seeing an elderly lady who'd lost her husband about four or five months previously. And I was doing a follow-up visit. And I asked her how she was doing. And she said, Richard, even though it's been four months since Ronnie's passing, I'm still lifting down two teacups. And it was the little things that was bringing with it the overwhelming sadness. And as I chatted with her and we talked and we looked back on days of great memories We look back on funny things that Ronnie had done. We look back on his time with his grandchildren and his children. And incidentally, talking about someone who's passed is always a healthy process. It may be painful, but it's always healthy in the long run. And delayed grief can be just awful. So please don't beat yourself up about feeling sad. In fact, think of this. Wouldn't it be strange if you loved someone and loved them deeply and were not sad at their passing? That would be strange. So give yourself time to process the memories, 
Time to look back, time to shed those tears and let grief run its course. It is of immense value. And so what Paul is saying here is this. Yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve like others grieve because we have the hope of the gospel. And so he's writing to this young church to say, yes, of course we grieve, but remember what's to come. The scriptures also teach this, and I think the folks at Thessalonica were asking this, when someone passes, what happens to their soul? We know what happens to them physically. We know what happens when someone is buried. But what happens to their soul and their spirit? Well, the scripture teaches in various places, in fact, that the soul, the spirit, immediately of the Christian goes into the presence of God. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging at Calvary, being crucified, and he turned to one of the thieves and he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he was, because he had simply trusted in Christ. He saw him for who he was and trusted him. Secondly, in the book of Philippians, earlier in the New Testament, the apostle Paul is writing and he says, departing this life and being with Christ. Elsewhere in the same epistle, he writes, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And the scriptures tell us this, that we enter into the presence of God. We are consciously aware of his presence we sense not only his presence, but his holiness. We sense his love. We sense his grace. And we have joy in that process because here we are in our Savior's presence. He whom we have prayed to multiple times. He whom we have trusted with our life. Finally, eventually, we are there with him. And then Paul goes on to say, to bring encouragement and reassurance to this young church uh, in Thessalonica, he's saying to them, I've used the phrase asleep because it's a helpful euphemism. It reminds us that the person who's died is almost still. And often when I'm with family and we are at a funeral and there is an open casket, folks will say again and again, she looks as if she's sleeping, and there's a stillness. There is a sense of no longer running hard, no longer busy, a sense of being at rest. And we use that phrase, rest in peace. There's a second thought, of course, of Old Testament language where some of the patriarchs of the Old Testament are described in terms of sleeping with their fathers. And then, of course, when... In the midst of all of that, here was Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. And Jesus, even though he knew he was about to bring Lazarus back to life, he weeps. And he weeps because Lazarus, his good friend, has died. And so there's that combination of helpful imagery of sleeping but at the same time, joy, sadness, but also remembering 
what is taking place in heaven itself, where those whom we love are in the presence of God. Now, you may be saying to me, Richard, okay, I think I've understood most of that. And I also grasp that the Apostle Paul is writing to say that when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise. We will see them as they are at their best. In fact, we know that when Christ comes back, both Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture teach us that at the second coming of Christ, all of history will be over. It will have come to a climax and a culmination. And the, what's the best way of putting it? The redemptive purposes of God will be absolutely and utterly fulfilled. And God in all of his wonder, in all of his unvarnished holiness, in all of his majesty, in his transcendent power, will come back. And when Christ comes back, please hear this, the passage is clear. He's not sending one of the Old Testament prophets. He's not sending an archangel. He's not sending St. Peter. Jesus himself in all of his wondrous power and holiness will be there when all of history will come to an end and you will have a new heaven and a new earth. And when the dead in Christ rise, they will have what Scripture describes as resurrected bodies. We will recognize each other. Now, if you think you look good this morning, it will be nothing compared to when God is finished with you. You will be at your very, very best because he will be taking joy and satisfaction and deep contentment in you. And he will look at us and say, they are mine. I died for them. I accomplished at Calvary their salvation. And they, countless millions, will live with me forever. Where there is no more tears and no more pain and no more wrestling with these mortal bodies perfection will have come at last and that's why Paul is writing the way he is now you may be saying okay Richard I think I've got it the picture's pretty clear also we don't need to worry about the time or the place he tells us chapter 5 I'm not writing to you about dates and times trust me I've got it and he has and now you're saying Okay, Richard, how does that equip me in any way to live out my faith tomorrow morning? It's a typical Monday. I've got a full busy day ahead. What difference does the second coming make to me tomorrow? What difference does it make? I am appreciative that it's coming. I'm immensely grateful to God that he has 
touched and transformed my heart. I am thrilled that I belong to him, but it seems a long way off. What difference does it make to me tomorrow morning? Well, let me make the application, and it's this. I was telling the two earlier services that many years ago now, an older colleague was preaching in a very small rural northwest highland village, and he arrived about 30 minutes early for the service, and they were showing him around uh, the sanctuary and introducing him to some of the elders and the organist, and they were going through the order of service, and all was well. Then they said to him, would you like to see next door? We have a small hall and we have Sunday school for the children and a little nursery. He said, sure. So he went next door and he saw some of the boys and girls. And on the nursery door, he kind of stuck his head in and there were three or four wee ones there. And on the nursery door, it said nursery. And then a scripture reference. Not the passage, just the reference. And it was 1 Corinthians 15, 51. And he thought, that's odd. I don't remember 1 Corinthians talking about a nursery. And so when he went back over to the church and he was getting ready for the service, he thought, you know, I really ought to look that up and see what it says. And as he flicked over to 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it said this, we may not all be sleeping, but we will all be changed pretty good for a nursery. Pretty good for a nursery. Now, some of you are sleeping and can't understand why others are laughing. And if that's the case, ask them on the way out. Or it may be, and this is a little confession for me, so please forgive me, around 10 o'clock to 10.30 on a Sunday evening is the most satisfying hour of the entire week for me. Because like you, I'm getting under the covers, I'm fixing my pillow, I'm pulling up the blankets, and I know that all over Greenville people are going, oh, that's what he meant this morning, and the penny finally has, has dropped. We may not all be sleeping, but we will all be changed. As Paul moves into chapter 5, he tells them this, you are a people who belong to the Lord. You are sons and daughters of light. Don't live as if you are living in darkness the way you once lived, but you are sons and daughters of light. Live like that. Verse 5, you are sons of the light and sons of the day. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. You are sons of light. You are a people of God, a people who have a gospel idea. Identity. You're a people for whom living out your faith matters. You seek to be a 
accountable. You seek to be transparent. You seek to be men and women of integrity and character and men and women who live for Christ each day, applying the gospel in the messiness and distraction of everyday life. And more than all of that combined, please hear this, that a day will come when you will understand for yourself the enormity of what it means to be touched by the gospel. And you will understand eventually that when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as this sun, there are no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. That's how you apply it tomorrow morning and you give thanks to him for his love and you lift yourself up and say, Father, I have messed up in the past, but from here on by your grace, take me by the hand, strengthen me, equip me, enable me because I belong to you. That's why Paul brings in the second coming to this young church in the midst of a bustling city. And if it was important in the first century, it is every bit as important in the 21st century as we seek to be a people who will impact the spiritual heart of this city. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for all that we have learned this morning. And thank you that in the midst of our grief and our sadness, when we lose those we love, we know with certainty that we will see them again and spend eternity with you. Father, for those of us who are grieving this morning, bring comfort and consolation. For those of us who are grieving over our own sin, Encourage, strengthen, enable us, and enable us, please, to live in the light of the wonder of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.